This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. And we thank you above all, as Paul said, for its power. Pray that as we meditate upon it today, as we participate in this sacred moment, that you would heal us, that you would cleanse us, that you would save us and deliver us by the power of your cross. Amen. Just now you have heard this incredible, dramatic reading of the passion of Christ from the Gospel of John. It's dark. It's heavy. You this lead up from the betrayal of Judas to his arrest in the garden to his accusation by the chief priests and the abandonment of his friends. Do you feel the heaviness of that? Do you feel how alone he is when Peter denies him? Do you feel how isolated and alone he is when Pilate callously and dismissively questions him? The soldier's mockery, the crowd's preference for Barabbas, who looks a lot more like the Messiah to them than Jesus did. Do you hear the agony and the despair as Jesus is scourged and mocked and beaten? He's finally alone ashamed, lifted up on the cross, tortured with the cruelest form of execution humanity has ever invented. How can we call this Friday good? There's really two ways of looking at the cross. When we look at it from below, from a human perspective, we see it one way. But when we look at it from above, from the perspective of divine revelation, what is revealed about what the cross does, we get a different perspective. And you see, almost all modern scholarship focuses on understanding the cross from below, understandably. The historical and the sociological dimensions within Roman culture about what crucifixion means and how on earth Christ ended up on a cross. You see, from this perspective, the cross is a spectacle of human cruelty. It's a particularly shameful form of execution, not only because of its brutality, but for how it places a person beyond the bounds of the human race. And I highlight this point about Jesus' aloneness. To highlight this point, he's put beyond the boundaries of the human race by this cross. Crucifixion could not be used on Roman citizens. So to be a victim of crucifixion in the first place was to be marked as a completely dispensable nobody. And that the victim had to carry the instrument of his own murder further reinforces the contempt that the empire is heaping upon you as they crucify you. And the victim is crucified in a very public place and completely naked, in complete sight of all the passersby who are then invited to heap their own scorn and mockery upon the victim. This is a terrifying penalty that the Roman Empire had at, at its disposal. The classic scholar Sarah Rudin says that when the Romans wanted to say go to hell to somebody, they said get crucified. 
And it's worse. In the case of Christ, as all the gospel writers stress, I know you heard it in John's account too, that conviction and the crucifixion was beyond doubt an egregious and a terrible miscarriage of justice. The result of a combination of genuine malevolence and callousness and cruelty on the part of the chief priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who feared the loss of their own prestige in the face of Jesus' ministry. And the callousness and the wanton cruelty of Pilate and the soldiers and of the crowds. All of this is true. Crucifixion is terrible. Jesus' isolation is terrible. The actions of the authorities and the crowd are terrible. And all the gospel writers pointed out. But if this is all we see, we will not understand why Jesus' death is significant. There is no reason to highlight it or distinguish it from the innumerable other tragic, cruel, and catastrophically violent deaths in human history. And indeed, in our age, there's a kind of perplexity about why we'd want to highlight this death over others in history. The question is not so much, why was it that Jesus was crucified? But why should I care? Why does it matter? The agnostic novelist Douglas Adams, who died a few years ago, actually, underscores this question in his book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is a little levity, you know, interspersed within my sermon here. If you've ever read this book, it's, it is terribly funny, but it's gallows humor. There's a cynicism at its heart. And he opens the plot of the book this way. He said, this planet has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much much of the time, most of the time. And many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper which were unhappy. And so the problem remained. Lots of people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with, this was written in the 80s, digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they had all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place. And some said that even the, then the trees had been a bad move and that no one should ever have left the oceans. And then one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realized what had been going wrong all this time. And she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. This time it was right, it would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone about it, a terrible, stupid catastrophe occurred and the idea was lost forever. That's how he opens the book. You see, you got to understand, for Adams, the cross is emblematic of the larger meaning of history as a whole, which is this, it doesn't mean anything. History is not even tragedy, it's farce. It mocks us with its meaninglessness, which is the point of view expressed in world literature best by Hamlet, right? This life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Do you ever worry that that's true? Do your friends worry that that's true? Maybe you are deeply committed to justice, but maybe you are discouraged by how ephemeral the gains are that we can secure by our own efforts. Maybe you do feel hopeful, but on dark days you feel 
Like maybe at the, at the very root of things, history is just violence all the way down. And it's meaningless. If that's where you are today, if that's where your friends are today, I ask you to consider the New Testament's point of view. The point of view of divine revelation. What does this cross mean? A reading from Hebrews today gives us another vantage on the cross. It enables us to see that Jesus' death was of ultimate significance and that actually it was necessary to secure something for the restoration and the healing of humanity that could not be accomplished in any other way. The New Testament's perspective on this is that history is filled with anguish. It does not shy away from the anguish of the world. But it is meaningful because God has made it and he will ultimately not let it be lost. The most famous verse in the entire New Testament declares that it was because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Not because he was angry. Not because he wanted to destroy it, but because he loved it and would not see it perish. And so the gospel writers are united upon this central fact, understood from a divine perspective. Jesus' death is not an accident. It is not a cosmic mistake or a mockery of the truth. And our reading from the epistle of the Hebrews today goes beyond this and tells us that not only was this death not an accident, it was only through it that God's desires for humanity could be accomplished. It says this, Christ's death is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in Israel, and it also brings that system to its end on the stage of history. Year after year, the author proclaims, on Yom Kippur, sacrifices offered for the atonement of sins in Israel and the temple, but the, these sacrifices could not perfect those who drew near. I want you to understand, this word perfect here, or perfect, it doesn't mean like what we think perfect means, like blamelessness or moral purity, it means completion, wholeness, or integrity. It means God's completion of the design with which he made humanity. That's the sense of the Greek. Sin is pictured in all of these different places in Scripture as something that pollutes or stains us internally, most powerfully in Psalm 51. And the blood of the sacrifice was meant to cleanse that stain, that pollution, to heal us and restore us to wholeness. The point of the sacrifice was that we, like Christ in that Hebrews passage, might have our hearts cleansed so that we could say wholeheartedly to God, Behold, I have come to do your will. But the author of Hebrews tells us that the problem with the sacrifices is that they couldn't do that. They could not sufficiently cleanse us. The author of Hebrews tells us they could not cleanse the conscience. They could not cleanse our hearts. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, it says in verse 4. Instead, they mock us with our sins. Year after year, they serve as a reminder of sins rather than taking them away. The limitations of the cleansing power of sacrifice is not something that the author of Hebrews is making up here or inventing in the light of Christ. Actually, in the Old Testament, this is acknowledged over and over again. I mean, look at Psalm 50. It says, God does not need bulls and goats. He wants the hearts of his people. 
I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. God doesn't need our sacrifice. He owns everything because he made it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The only thing that pleases God is a heart that is turned toward him in perfect sincerity. The will that is offered to him that says, behold, I have come to do your will. Psalm 50 goes on to say, offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving. But you see, that psalm goes on and it says, everywhere that God looked, what he saw was a people whose hearts were filled with deceit, with murderous thoughts, and a hatred of discipline and limits and boundaries. A people who refused to obey him, refused to offer them, offer him their wills. And that is not just the problem with Israel, is it? That's the problem with all of us. Divided heart, a deceitful heart, a bitter and resentful heart, a heart that blasphemes and is idolatrous. It's the curse of humanity that's enslaved to sin. And Jesus tells us earlier in John's gospel, whoever sins has become a slave to sin. All of our hearts are held captive by this tyrant, this tyrant of sin. And here in John's passion narrative, all of the tyrannies of the world's empires are exposed. But above all, what is exposed is the tyrant that we bear in our chests, in our hearts. Given the right power, the right set of circumstances, all of us would unleash hell upon this world. And we would do this not out of pure malevolence, but thinking we were doing the right thing, even serving God himself. As Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. If you don't believe that about yourself this morning, then ask yourself who you are willing to believe it about. And then ask yourself, how different am I really from that person? You see, in the cross, Jesus offers not the blood of bulls and goats, but himself, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as Psalm 50 says. And he says, behold, I have come to do your will. And that sacrifice has sanctified us. It has cleansed the stain and the pollution of sin in us. How? Because all of those who have received Christ's Holy Spirit have been made one through this sacrifice with him by faith. His perfect life and his offering of himself has been, as it were, poured into us. We have been filled with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. His sacrifice has become our sacrifice and we are being refashioned into his likeness. That is the Christian hope. That is why the cross is significant. That is its power. That in Christ we too can offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving, saying, behold, I have come to do your will. And this is why this Friday, where we look upon the cross, can be called good. The sacrifice that Christ gives us on the cross is of inestimable value. Through him we can see that history is not some kind of cosmic joke. It's not a farce. It does not mock us with its meaninglessness. Because God made it and he is redeeming it through the power of this cross. Through Christ we have peace with God. We are cleansed from the pollution of sin. And we can rightly take our place as agents in this drama of redemption, saying to God, behold, I have come to do your will. 
So let's adore our God upon this cross who bled for us and offered himself a sacrifice and offering to God for us. Amen.